Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. My audacity has given me an error message when I try to record. Exit out of it. Fully exit out of it. Like file, exit, and then restart it. Pretty audacious. Yeah, it's, it's easily the most appropriately named program. <laughs> Except for Hooters. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we'd gotten that on the show. Oh, it's in there. There's your cold <laughs> open right there. I know. It's going to be the first line. Nice job, Tom. Did I just get canceled? What are you, Jimmy Garoppolo, Tom? Just hanging out in front of a Hooters? What's up? <laughs> Garoppolo. By the way, how many people watching those Subway ads do you think know that that's Jimmy Garoppolo or who Jimmy Garoppolo is? It doesn't matter. He's that beautiful. <laughs> Anything he says, I'm in because he's that handsome. And is that his actual grandmother? Hmm. Or is it Martin Scorsese's? <laughs> I always thought it was really uh, frustrating when the Chunky Soup commercials didn't use the actual mothers. Wait, are you telling me that really wasn't Donovan McNabb's mom (laughs) on the Chunky Soup commercials? One of them was, but in a couple others, it wasn't. That's how they do it. They trick you. Your whole life has been a lie, Peter. (laughs) Big Soup. Welcome to the Underdogs Podcast. I'm Tom Haverstra. As always, I'm joined by my underdogs aficionados, Jordan Brenner and Peter Keating. Oh, we got an amazing interview here with Austin Eckler, who is actually probably going to take over our jobs. Right, Jordan, Peter? Yeah, we're done. He'll be your favorite athlete after you hear him. If you, I mean, if you're not familiar with him as much uh, after you hear him talk. And yeah, he casually said that he's got a podcast going several multiple fantasy leagues right yeah he's just gonna slide into my seat possibly as soon as uh the draft is over he's coming for all our jobs he's that charismatic he's that talented um we're gonna have the interview with the los angeles chargers running back straight out of western colorado who's from lincoln nebraska a true underdog we've got lots of contenders for the ultimate underdog first we thought it was shane battier and now we're gonna have it with austin eckler we don't we don't really know who's the ultimate underdog but he's got a great case we're also going to talk nba playoffs are the sixers actually going to blow this and really what is the history of teams going up 3-0 and getting to a Game 7 potentially? We're going to talk about title futures, Memphis Grizzlies, Grit and Grind, Minnesota Timberwolves. It's an ugly series, but it's delightful when John Moran has the ball. And lastly, we'll get into Peter's hot corner, the lukewarm corner. Can't wait to hear what he has to say. But first, let's get to our interview with Austin. All right, well, we are super excited here to have on the Underdogs podcast the NFL's best underdog, Austin Eckler, running back extraordinaire of the Los Angeles Chargers. Austin, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me on, boys. Looking forward to it. So we like to zig when everyone else is zagging. Everyone else is talking about the draft this week. We want to talk to an undrafted player. So Austin, like <laughs> you probably are the best undrafted player in the league right now. There have been a million stories written about how you made the Chargers uh, you know, after being passed over in the draft. The stories about Anthony Lynn not knowing your name in minicamp, being sent to the special teams coach, and he thinking you were the ball boy. 
<laughs> what we're wondering is what that says about the way the NFL evaluates talent, that you were that far off the radar screen coming out of college, and here you are an All-Pro. What have you learned now a couple years later after that process? Wow. Thanks thanks for that intro. <laughs> Bringing back all the memories, man. Yep. <laughs> Never forget. Never forget that, man. Wait, you were really, they really thought you were the ball boy. Come on. That can't be true. Jordan definitely added that one. <laughs> <laughs> I read a story where they quoted, and, and you went to, what was, what was the special teams coach's name again? Uh, George Stewart. George and Stu was like, I thought he was the ball boy coming to ask about balls no, for practice. No, no, <laughs> no. Coach Lynn, did, he did say he didn't know my name though after um, after OTAs. Uh, I was just number. I was just number three. Well, from number three to number one, what does that say, sort of, about <laughs> how teams evaluate talent and what it takes to make the roster coming in off the radar screen like that? Yeah, I think. I mean, first we'll give a shout out to. Uh, Tom McConaughey, who was the scout that, that came up to Western and found me, man. Um, these guys and girls, these people are just out here just actually like skimming, right? Like they're looking for anything that could be a potential uh, value to the team. Um, and Tom came up to my little tiny town up in Colorado um, and sat down with me. And he, he was just so excited, man. He was just like, man, because he recruited Danny Woodhead, if y'all know who Danny was. And he's like, you remind me so much of Danny Woodhead. He's like, he's, we just had him on the team. He's the retiring. Like, I think he could fill the void. Um, kind of a similar story. We played in the same conference. And so uh, when it comes to recruiting, as far as with the Chargers, I know we've been pulling, uh, we've had a lot of free agents um, that have made this 53 or even been on practice squad. Uh, sorry, uh, undrafted uh, guys. And so I think our scouting squad is probably one of the best in the league as far as who we're pulling through the ranks uh, of undrafted. And I mean, you have, you have, wait, was Antonio Gates drafted? No, he wasn't. I mean, I remember watching him play college basketball, but I don't remember him being drafted. <laughs> no, he wasn't drafted. I mean, he's one of the legends, so. Chris Harris, right? Yeah, absolutely. So that's what I'm saying. We guess there's some good undrafted guys in the league for sure. But none sure. better than you, Austin. None better than you. Come on. Hey, I, I compare myself to myself. I'll let everyone else do that. <laughs> but it's funny you mentioned the the Woodhead thing because Mays, our producer, was pointing out the Chargers' history with smaller running backs between Woodhead, you, Darren Sproles. Is there something in the culture of that organization that, like philosophically, that they maybe don't care about size, that, that other skill sets they look for? I don't know. Maybe it just comes to be more of a, of a receiving back um, and maybe that's the more prototypical receiving back is a smaller back uh, obviously with Philip you know he's not the most you know agile so if he needs a check down he needs someone he can you know depend on catching the ball out of the running out of the backfield so that could be the trend um, not saying that big guys can't catch but I, I don't know maybe that's what it was and what was that process like of trying to get noticed up at Western you know um, what did you have to do to promote yourself how many people came in to see you? What was that pre-draft process like? Yeah, man. So I actually had, we had a scout from the Packers come talk to us. Um, he actually went to Western uh, and he came up. He was a, he was a, yeah. he was a friend of our, uh, of our running back coach. And he came and talked to us. He's like, well, if, if you guys are trying to make it to the league at this level, you have, you just have to, you have to dominate. You have to absolutely dominate every single year you're here. And that will get you noticed. Uh, and for me, I was sitting there, I think I was a sophomore at the time, and I had a pretty good freshman year. It was freshman of the year, offensive player of the year, all of that, um, and pretty much did that. Dominated every single year I was there. You know, I was top of the rankings, averaged like 200 yards of offense and two touchdowns a game. Um, so I was putting up some numbers, right, because it's a you know lesser talent, you know, things like that. Um, so, you know, that's what it had to be. And then 
when it came to actually my senior year, there was probably like 20 teams that came up and looked and was watching me practice, things like that. So there was legit interest uh, my senior year. So I had a question about the draft process itself is the combine. I know you have like a crazy vertical. What, what is the official Austin Eckler, like his, from his own mouth, like what is his vertical that he's topped out at? 40 and a half, I believe, and a half inch. And like, oh, I can down guess. Absolutely. So you can probably not. I'm a little heavier. <laughs> um, so I'll probably get close, but I got small hands too, so I can't palm it. So, you know, I got to do the whole. <laughs> two, two hands. Throw it down two hands. Uh, awesome. When, when you, I'm like looking for combines results and I'm not seeing your name, maybe some places, other places. So did you do the combine and just people looked over your stats or were you just having to submit your numbers afterward? So, no, I didn't go to the Combine, but I went to CU's Pro Day. And I had to go to CU's because there's too much snow on the field up at Western. If you need proof that I could dunk, I could dunk back in high school. Uh, there's a video. Just look up Boston Eckler dunk if you're trying to find that one. Or throw it up on the screen for him. I don't know <laughs> when this goes live. <laughs> Does the Combine like matter? Like, did, Were you bummed that you weren't going to go to the Combine? And what kind of disadvantage do you have? So my agent, he's like, look, man, like you went to a really small school, so people are – probably going to try to pick you up in free agency they're probably not gonna draft you like but you, that doesn't mean anything that doesn't mean that oh you're not going to get interest um and so the same thing actually happened at the the pro day um he's like look you're gonna go to a pro day you have to add in to all these people um you have to you have to show out right away and i realized that when i got there because they were like okay everyone gets to run the 40 and everyone gets to jump after that we're cutting down and then we're we'll continue after that so there's probably there's probably 30 of us at this you know CU pro day after the CU guys went I called out you know uh, called out a Boulder guys and only two of us made the cut I ran the 40 and jumped and another corner ran the 40 and jumped and everyone everyone else did too but they cut everyone down besides me and this cornerback I forgot who the corner was um, and everyone was so mad because they had no idea that was going to happen. And, you know, <laughs> trainers out there pissed, like yelling at scouts and they're like, hey, we got to get going. Like if you don't have this type of you know caliber speed or an explosiveness, like we got to move on. Um, and so I was like, well, that sucks for y'all, but I'm going to, you know, get my opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right. And that's why, why even now you'll see guys who have some stats, but not all the other rest of the line filled in. Um, yep. Austin, how much is this something that you felt like you had already been through coming out of high school? Because it was a it was a similar process, right? I mean, you grew up in a small town yeah. and there was not a lot of recruiting, right? I mean, what what did it right. take from that point, even earlier, you know, when you're coming out of high school to get noticed? I mean, I guess I couldn't tell you that because I didn't get noticed really <laughs> coming out of high school, right? Like I, I was sending my film to to different schools. I was, you know, in different camps across the across the, the United States from South Dakota to Nebraska and all the Colorado ones, uh, Division One, Division One Double A's, and I I don't know what it was. I don't know if I was too small, that I was too fast, or what they didn't like about me, but it was the same story. Like I still dominated. I went to a smaller school in Colorado. I, by senior year at, you know, 2,300 rushing yards and 43 touchdowns. I'm scoring like five, six touchdowns a game, you know, just running over everybody, running through everybody. And so I'm like, what else would a guy need to do to get noticed by even a D one double a, like, what are you looking for out there? Because I mean, 
what they didn't know about me is that I was just super obsessed with my opportunity and getting it. Like that would have been a bonus, but the stats were there. What do you do with that exasperation? Like, um, I mean, do you feel like you're put behind and it's, it's tough to catch up from that early stage? There's so many players, you know, basically trying to sell themselves to so many teams and you have to find some way to stand out or to wedge yourself into their focus. What would what, that do to your mindset? I mean, it, it look, it told me like, okay, maybe, maybe I just don't have it. Maybe I just don't have to play. Like, but I didn't get discouraged as far as me playing. I still was going to put my best effort forward, but I was like, okay, maybe I'm a division two. And it wasn't my grades or anything like that. Like I had a, I had a three, one or something like that in high school. So that wasn't an issue. You know, I see that sometimes. Um, but it, it didn't discourage me. Um, that's the biggest thing, you know, and that's the, that's what I would say to any, you know, rec- someone who's going through recruiting, don't get discouraged because wherever you are, you can still make an impact and still make it to, you know, the highest level if that's what you're wanting to. And it, for me, I didn't even know I wanted to make it to the highest level. I just wanted to play the best and be the best that I could be um, at that moment. And then it ended up my junior year. My coach was like, Hey man, you might have a chance to play in the NFL. I didn't even watch the NFL until then. It's like, Oh, let me check this out. <laughs> <laughs> It was not you know, a very popular thing. Not, not, not yeah, 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 back then. Small little league, yeah. <laughs> Austin, what advice would you give to other uh, Western Colorado or Western types of players at those types of schools, whether it's D2, 1AA? What advice would you give them if they are putting up stats, putting up ungodly numbers, and still not getting the kind of attention they, they feel they deserve? Is there anything that you did that you would recommend to others in your position, underdogs? Matt, I mean, just the advice is take, keep taking advantage, like take advantage of the opportunity in front of you. You have to take advantage of the now. The the great thing about the NFL is they put a lot of money into finding talent. Um, so they will find you. They look at the stats, they're looking, they're calling. Like there's people that get into camp that I'm like, Oh, this person, how did this person make it? You know, it's like, Oh, well they were, you know, they were in some division two school out in, you know, Georgia and they, you know, had a good year. And so a scout brought him in for a rookie mini camp. Uh, right. To give my opportunity to try to make it to actual camp. Uh, and so the, just focus on now, like my senior year, it was just like, okay, like I told, I had an agent reach out to me and I was like, Hey, I don't want to hear about any pro stuff right now. I just want to focus on dominating this last year. And so I can make it through and then start talking about the NFL. Uh, it's, I think that's what it takes, especially when you're at a smaller school <clears throat> and the guys of what it's like, you have to take advantage now. Like don't even get caught up in the NFL stuff yet on the field, you put up those dominating numbers off the field. You're known for crazy workouts, your, your incredible work ethic and your workout sessions. Tell us a little bit about this freak flex thing you have going on where you have your partner sitting on your shoulders while you're lifting (laughs) 335 pounds in a UFC cage or at least next to one. Um, when did, when did your intense work ethic start manifesting in these frankly insane uh, work, workout sessions. I mean, guys, there's a video, there's a disclaimer on his video, which actually says nobody was harmed in the making of this, right? Right. Literally, that's true, right? Uh, man, I mean, for me, working out has just become a culture, uh, from a young age. I think I started working out when I was 15 and I started working out with some of my best friends back in high school. And it was just, and even my strength and conditioning coach, who was also my offensive coordinator in high school and also my basketball coach. And so like, we just had this bond in the weight room. So like when we were in the weight room, it was so much fun. It was super competitive. I remember my, uh, our strength coach always being like, if you can now lift me, you can get my gold chain. Like he was like, he gets, he'd get us jacked up. Um, and it just became a culture that stayed with me. And then I, I, 
found some similar guys when I got into college and it was that same culture. Like we'd go work out after practices, um, and, and do additional work. I remember before spring training one time, uh, we were, uh, I put a thing up on Facebook when Facebook was more popular. Um, and I was like, Hey, if anyone's trying to go hit two miles with me and my buddies at 6am, let's go run. Uh, and then my, my actually strength coach was like, Hey, you guys can't be running like that. Like we don't want you doing too much. And it's just like, that was the, that was the intensity and the mindset that we had. It was like, we're just always going to continue to grind. And that was just part of us. Uh, I was like that with my education too, though. Um, and so I was able to grow in, in two different spaces. Uh, but like, it's just stayed with me. It stayed with me and it's created me into a person that I'm like super compact, very strong. Cause I just lift year round. Like I'm not like people like, Oh, it's off season. They take a little bit of time off. It's like, I see time off from getting hit, not necessarily from lifting. Uh, and so to make it interesting, we're like, all right, let's spice it up. You know, let's put someone up on the shoulders. Let's do some one arm pull-ups, you know, let's try to make it a little bit more challenging and fun to watch. So it seems like a common theme here is that you're able to control what you can control, right? Like you are someone who no one can stop me. Maybe your strength coach from back in the day might stop you from doing those 6 a.m. workouts. But really like working out and your work ethic seems to be something like that is your greatest asset is that you're just going to outwork everybody and your opportunities will come later. And if you can control what you can control, opportunity will come. So like when you join the Chargers after after the draft or the non-draft for you, but after the draft, your first mini camp or training camp, you basically go in there and the coach is like, yeah, special teams, go for it. And your mentality is what when you're assigned to special teams after putting up 7,000 touchdowns <laughs> as a running back in college? Uh, I'll just go back real quick. He said, I'm trying to outwork everybody. I'm not trying to outwork anybody besides myself. Like... It's all, like you said, control what you can control. That's exactly right. But it's like, I, I compare myself to myself. Do I feel like I am working harder or working even at the same efficiency rate that I was in the past that get, continued to get me here? And I think that's super important. Like people like, don't get caught up in what other people are doing because you're not them. Like it's all relative to you. Are you working hard? Which that might look different for some people, but depending on the situation. But as far as my mindset going into camp and getting on special teams, like, when I was in pro day training um, at in Colorado with Lauren Landau, who's now the strength coach for the, the Broncos, like he had all these Denver guys coming in and all these other pro guys coming in. Like, yeah, like talking about my situation, like when I got signed, like, yeah, you're probably going to be on special teams, man. I'm just going to let you know you got to make it on special teams because especially at running back, if you're a backup, you got to be able to impact in some other way because coaches look like, okay, how many plays is this guy getting on? on Sundays. Right. And if it's not in the, you know, 15, 10 to 15 in your backup, then they're going to, they're going to bring someone else in, right. They're going to bring someone else who can make an impact and can get on the field. So I had that going into my mind. Um, and I knew coming in, I was, I was probably not going to get many reps on offense because I was six string. There was five running backs in front of me, you know? <laughs> so I'm, I'm getting like three, four plays of practice. Most of my plays are coming on scout team, special teams. So I'm doing I'm doing the the scout team for the guys that are on special teams trying to make the, the team right. Uh, that was my moment, and during my moment, it, if it was ever 100, you can I was untouchable. I was literally untouchable. That was my mindset, and I was just running like my like my life depended on it because it did for that opportunity. Uh, and that's the mindset that I brought to special teams. I knew, hey, if I'm going to make an impact, it's going to be right here, and that was my opportunity. Was there a particular moment? where you saw things start to change in, in their perception of you and where you went from scout team, special teams and six string running back to I'm getting a shot here. No, straight up. No, <laughs> I stayed six string 
and scout teams, special teams, the entire training camp and all preseason. I, I, bro, I was, this thing had me stressed, man. I'm in here like, coach, what do I got to do to move up on the depth chart? Cause I'm thinking it's like old school, like, Oh, you got to move up stuff like that. And then it's like the top two or whatever, make it. And I'm like, like, I, I feel like I'm doing well with my opportunities that I'm getting. Um, you know, I, we were on a seven on seven joint practice and I actually got thrown in cause there were some injuries, uh, uh, with Phillip against, you know, the saints and boom, went caught a touchdown in the back of the end zone from Phillip and my, you know, my coordinator at the time, uh, Wizenhunt, it's like, man, that's what the NFL is about right there. Keep doing that. And so I was like, man, I'm doing these things. And then another time, uh, we were doing some punts. I was on punt scout team. And so I'm like, you know, servicing the punt return team and it was full speed, you know, no helmets or anything, but I just was flying down the field, made a move on somebody, got by somebody. And coach Lynn came in and was like, Hey, who's that number three? And coach <laughs> Stu's like, that's Austin Eckler. He's giving us a hell of a look. And so it was, it was little things that I'm like, man, like, I feel like I'm doing great. Like how am I not moving up? And then literally did not move up the entire time. So definitely had me stressed. I remember literally breaking down. I was, I broke down crying to my coach one time because I was like, coach, like I'm putting so much time into this. I'm a, I study the playbook. I know everything that's going on. Like I, I know my role. I know my job. I'm doing it. And I'm not getting any more reps or anything like that. And he's like, look, man, like you got to stay patient. That's not how the NFL works. Um, uh, He's like, you got to make sure that you just, when your number's called, as it's been, like you continue to do that. And that we absolutely noticed that. And so finally, after the fourth preseason game, I got interviewed and, you know, the interviewer was like, hey, like, how do you feel like you did? Do you feel like you made the team? I was like, I, I don't know what's going to happen. But what I do know is that was everything you could have got out of Austin Eckler. There was nothing else I could have done. So if I, if that was good enough, I'll make it. If not, then I'll go find something else to do. So how did you make the team and what did they tell you when you made it if you hadn't been in that role yet, even in, in, in by the fourth preseason game? So, I mean, the things that I was even talking about kept showing up in preseason games. When we got to preseason, I think I had like five tackles in preseason, which was which was amazing because I'm getting limited reps, right? I'm only getting three or four reps of special teams, you know, at a time. I didn't get – I don't think I got any offensive reps for the first game. Um, they were trying to develop another back um, – and so, and the fourth preseason game, which is the last one, none of the starters or second team play, people play. I got in in the fourth quarter, and yeah, the fourth quarter of the last game, man. I'm like, oh, like give me an opportunity, please. Yeah, the bell is and ringing. I, yeah, I finally get to the game for like a couple drives, and I'm just making people miss. I had like 40 yards of offense, and I think I had two touch or tackles on special teams that game. So I'm making an impact wherever they put me on the field. You're telling me that the reason why you made it as a running back in this league is because you were good at tackling yes. people on the other yes. end of the field. My rookie year, my rookie year, I led the NFL in tackles on punt. That's awesome. That's my favorite stat. That's fantastic. <laughs> do you miss hitting people? I miss punt, man. I do actually, because that's like that's like my roots now in the NFL. That's how it got me in. If you if you make a decision before your last season that it's going to be your last season. Last game. Can you go back out there on punt coverage? Lay the lumber one yeah, more time. Gotcha. Yeah. You know, lay, lay uh, someone out and then can just you walk promise off the us field, that right? as yeah. the best gunner in NFL history? Uh, yeah. You know, it's a little different now. I feel like, I feel like, you know, I, I got beaten up a little bit and, uh, I don't know if I'm as fast as I was my rookie year five years ago. So, uh, I might get jammed up, but I would definitely love to go out there and try again. Can we talk a little bit about the running back position? Um, because I think that plays into sort of, um, 
finding underdogs and finding um, hidden gems, right? The, the position's evolving, constantly evolving. You, as much as you're an incredible runner, your receiving stands out. Your pass blocking stands out. Are teams traditionally looking for the traits in running backs that, that dovetail with how NFL teams actually use running backs these days? What, what, if you were a scout, what would you be looking for in a modern running back in college? It's tough. It's really tough nowadays because it just depends on the coaching staff too, right? And then what you have on the roster. Um, there's a lot of variables that play into it. You know, uh, If you have someone like myself, I could do a little bit of all of it, but you don't want to keep me in the game because I'm only 5'8", you know, 195, right? So it's like, okay, let's get someone else that can also maybe do a little bit of all of it. But if you have someone who's, you know, a 230-pound back, you know, or 250, you know, Derrick Henry, uh, if you might want to get something to compliment him more of a passing back because he's not catching that many balls. So it really depends on the situation and what you have. And I think it comes down to the strengths of your starter, right? What is, who's our starter? What is, what is his strengths? Cause you always want to play to the strengths of your best players. Uh, and then try to, you know, you know, like, I guess, you know, compliment those, um, and fill some, fill some gaps, like so, so, so to speak. Um, but I mean, for me, if I'm going out and I'm recruiting, I'm looking for guys that can, you know, all around run and catch the ball, which I don't know. To me, it doesn't seem that hard because that's like what I do. Like I just run. I'm like, oh, why is, why is not everyone doing this? Right. Uh, but I guess it's more of a rare breed. But I mean, if the league has become more and more of a passing lead, league, how can it make sense to bring in someone who doesn't complement that part of the game, who can't? run out of a spread situation or who can't pick up a blitz. Like it doesn't have to be like a primary concern. Right. No, absolutely. Cause guess what? These quarterbacks are getting paid 50, 60 million dollars a year now. So you need someone who they can throw to and who you, who can protect them. Right. And so that's what it comes down to. And not, it's not just protecting a pass pro, but it's also getting open that it also protects them. So they can get the ball out of their hand, you know, and then they can actually catch the ball. I mean, I know it's only been five years, but guys, doesn't it seem like if there were anyone who played like Austin Eckler coming out in the draft, there's there's much less chance that player would go undrafted, right? I mean, somebody who can block and catch and run, I mean... I keep thinking about what you said last week's show about how there's some data now showing that strong interior run-stuffing off defensive linemen are actually a bad thing to draft because it encourages teams to pass more. And I, and I feel like that teams should be recognizing the same thing in terms of what kind of a running back do I need then in that sort of a league? I, I don't know. Like, I feel like the NBA NFL sometimes is, is below the curve in terms of the way the NBA and, and major league baseball have adapted to analytics. But, but it's different too, because like you get some of these, these dominant run running backs, you know, like a Jonathan Taylor, well, Jonathan Taylor can do it all, but like guy that's so explosive, uh, you know, uh, and then who's, you know, Pollard who showed up, he'd kind of do it all too, I guess. Uh, but you have some of these, you have these running backs that it's like, okay, these guys can actually run the ball. Like, let's give them the ball. Just let's hand it to them and see what they can do. And they're going to make some plays. So it fits. It fits in some places. None of those guys won me my fantasy football league last year. Austin Eckler did. Okay. So <laughs> no one cares about your Austin, fantasy football. Austin Eckler. That's, right, man. That's right. Austin Eckler That's cares. right. Let's go, baby. I, I appreciate it, it, man. I hey, think let's run it back. A strong sure interview tip to say no athlete. <laughs> Athletes may you, you meet athletes who care about fantasy teams, but nobody cares about your fantasy team in general. But that's Austin nice. on, Austin's but, on Twitter talking to fantasy owners. I have my own fantasy football show during the season. Thank you. you. Know? And 
Here's Thank the you. thing. I, fantasy football is the most missed out opportunity that guys just look past. Like there's so much opportunity in fantasy football that guys don't realize as far as connecting, as far as getting your name out there across the entire nation. I got people that they don't give any care about the world about the Chargers, but they love Austin Eckler because they're, he's talking about their fantasy. He's giving them tips. He's telling them how he feels. Like guys need to get into this because it's it's not just about your time playing. It's also about setting yourself up for the long run too. It's also about 20 touchdowns, <laughs> which is what Austin yeah. Eckler scored last well, season. Yeah. Well, even last year, even last year, I only scored two touchdowns. But I still had this huge, uh, you know, uh, fantasy community, you know, because it all blew up my hamstring. People are like, hey, when are you coming back? Like, how you doing? Like, and I'm just giving them this this content. Right. And it's so, it, yeah, if you do well, obviously, you know, you're going to get you know more recognition. But it's still just about the transparency, about the communication. Now, see, this is all wrong, Austin. You can't have more people doing what you're doing because you're one of one. There's only one person who can be the, the king of fantasy as uh, an NFL player as well. And it's bad for business if you got a bunch of competition. Come on. You got to own the marketplace. Yeah. This is a turf war. You got to own it. I'm trying to help these guys out, man. You can't keep mentioning other running backs who, quote, do everything. I, I don't, I'm not sure there are that many. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, well on that note, uh, I know Draymond Green famously can name like every player who went ahead of him in the draft because he was a second rounder and it's just a chip on his shoulder. There are 27 running backs that went in the 2017 NFL draft. And I'm curious, Austin, how many can you name that went in your year? Not, not many, not enough to even try because I just embarrassed myself. Um, well, cause the other thing is like, you didn't even think, I mean, on draft night, were you like locked in, like waiting for your name to be called or were you just already resigned? Like, I'm going to be a free agent. No, I remember in, on the third day, which is the day that I was probably going to go, uh, I was in the gym with my buddy. We were just waiting for the draft to be over. Um, and then about the sixth and seventh round, we made it back, made it back to the house. And that was when I was, okay, this is, if I ever get drafted, it's probably going to be sixth or seventh round. And sixth round went by, half of the seventh round went by. And then how it works is, you know, scouts will call uh, our agents if they have like a preferred free agent. And they'll be like, hey, if he doesn't get drafted, we'd like to sign him for whatever X amount, you know, a little mini signing bonus. Um, and we'll take him. So the halfway through, the Packers were the number one place I wanted to go because they had zero running backs on the roster. They ended up drafting three running backs. So, okay, they're off the board. I don't want to go there anymore. And then the Chargers were next because of just how excited they were and the opportunities that they that they had as far as the new coaching staff and a young running back room. And they called halfway through and they was like, all right, done deal. We're going to, we're going to LA. So that class, Fournette, McCaffrey, Dalvin Cook, Joe Mixon, Kamara, Kareem Hunt. I mean, it's insane the, the amount of talent. Are we off base by saying your year was probably the best running back class? Like, I don't know ever, but where does it rank in your head? Is like, man, all these dudes were in my draft class. Hey, like I told you, I didn't, I didn't start watching the NFL till uh, my junior year of college. So uh, coming out with uh, guys that are still playing and the impacts that we make on the team, uh, that's a pretty solid crew. It's going to be hard to beat as far as just all around. Um, just good. I feel like... You know, we don't maybe necessarily have any of the, the legends that have played. It's going to take more time for that to play out, um, which it always does, right? Like, but we have some potential there for sure. And uh, yeah, I think it's too early to say greatest of all time, but definitely a solid group. Do you think we could make up since you didn't follow the league? Like, could we make up some names of like fake legends or something and be like, you know, how did you compare to yeah. Houston Oilers legend Art Vandelay or, you know, <laughs> right, right. Joe Schlebach yeah. right. reminds me of you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I would definitely say I have no idea who that is. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't gonna even cap. 
Do you do you look uh, as a player? Do you do you look at guys coming out of college now, or prospects, or young players, and see who might have the kind of value that you unlocked in yourself through all this hard work? I mean, is there anybody that reminds you of you as a young, younger version of yourself? Fantasy sleepers. I don't watch college. Absolutely no. I, I'm not in there. The only thing I'm watching is guys that are in our room. And even even then, there's such a disconnect between recruiting and the actual team. Um, you know, just it's not really known. But like coaches, they can give their input. But it's, it at the end of the day, it comes down to our GM, right, and to our head coach. Um, and so, like, we're just like, all right, let's see who shows up. And then the guys that do show up, I'm open arms as far as, hey, this is what I've done. This is what's helped me coming from a spot where I was at the lowest odds to make the team. So future career prospects – Yes, to fantasy football czar, probably not so much to scouting and recruiting, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, well, it's hard because there's only so many hours in yeah. the day. What about <laughs> co host of the Underdogs podcast? <laughs> Anytime. I, I mean, I, I got a podcast, but it depends on if we can do it on Tuesdays. <laughs> if we can sneak it in on Tuesdays, that's the day. There we go. Done. Excellent. Done. Well, on that note, let us say goodbye to our future co-host, Austin Eckler, <laughs> yeah. on Tuesdays. We have to go decide who among us will survive to make it to the, to the Austin yeah, Eckler host under the – yeah, exactly. <laughs> who's who's going to be the sixth string podcast? <laughs> the be, yeah, exactly. Who are the yeah. five running backs who passed yeah, over? Right. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, man. All right. Well, Austin, right. thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we were yeah. really excited to have you on the show, and you somehow exceeded expectations. Not the first time. I appreciate y'all. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Remember the best vacation you've ever taken? Make your next one even better with Get Your Guide. With Get Your Guide, you can book over 100,000 unforgettable experiences in the U.S. and around the world. Want to see the Grand Canyon from a helicopter? They got you. Watching a wrestling match in Mexico City? No problem. Or how about a guided tour of Rome's ancient ruins? Wherever you're going, whatever you're into, book your next travel experience at GetYourGuide.com. Oh, man, he was delightful. This guy's like, I don't know, too talented? Is he a cyborg? I don't know. What I can tell you is that John Morant might seem like a cyborg. We're going to talk NBA playoffs here. Let's start here with the Memphis Grizzlies, Minnesota Timberwolves. I know, Peter, you were really big on Steven Adams and the ability to offensive rebound for the Memphis Grizzlies. They're, they're continuing to play like an underdog, even though Steven Adams is out of the picture. Once again, they go small down the stretch against Cap, Carl Anthony Towns. He's big. Memphis is going small with Brandon Clark, and they still pulled out the victory. I think that's what's amazing to me is that, you know, the Memphis Grizzlies are the two seed, but... They're going small. Brandon Clark had nine offensive rebounds in this game, and he went in game five, and he's six foot eight. Not even small with Brandon Clark at the five, but Dylan Brooks basically playing the four at that point. They, uh, or, or take your pick with him and Desmond Bain. It's not just that they weren't playing 
Steven Adams, Jaron Jackson was out of it. You know, Brandon Clark was a favorite of analytics guys coming into the draft out of Gonzaga and has, I always thought, real potential to be an offensive, if not star, serious contributor in the league. And it had been kind of disappointing up to this point. But yeah, the rebounding has been um, shocking. And I'm not kind of, I'm kind of not sure what that says about the Timberwolves. Well, when we go looking for stats in current teams to match successful underdogs or just winning teams of the past, we typically don't look for DNP coach's decision as the stat that stands out as the key to success. And that's what Steven Adams got. But nevertheless, Tom, Jordan, you're right. 18 offensive rebounds to six Memphis over Minnesota. I mean, again, the amazing fact is, is I just want to make sure I have this number right because it's near 100, right? Grizzlies, 94 field goal attempts, right? Uh, versus 83 for Minnesota. This possession building strategy is intense. It's a little insane and it's been really successful and it works whatever role you're playing in. I mean, I think even in this game, uh, right? Minnesota outshot. Yeah, Minnesota shot 45%. I think they shot far better than Memphis did from three, but the Grizzlies are constantly in possession of the ball. It's fascinating. In this series, Memphis Grizzlies have uh, gotten 86 second chance points compared to Minnesota's 58. So they are winning that by 28 points in the second chance column. In the points in the paint category, Memphis has 276 (laughs) to Minnesota's 192, an advantage of plus 80 in that column. And also beyond just the rebounding and pounding the paint, Memphis is winning the points off of turnovers. So when we talk about underdog strategy, you want to build up, you know, create those, create that chaos, get those extra possessions and capitalize. And Memphis has 113 points off of turnovers. Minnesota has just 91. But how did Memphis become the underdog in the series? That's the funny thing, right? They're not, but they've taken those qualities and applied them to quashing Minnesota. Uh, that's that's what that's what's making the series so fun is that neither one of these teams wants to say they're playing the role of favorite. Neither one of them actually acts like they're playing the role of favorite. So we're seeing this great clash of teams that that like to see themselves as underdogs. But Memphis is not just getting those second chances; they're capitalizing on them really, really. Isn't it amazing too how the um, points in the paint, Tom, has become the the domain of guards now? It used to be the the teams were the best post-up players, right? That's who was generating points in the paint. Now, you know, I mean, you'd think Minnesota without without Steven Adams could just pound the ball down low to Cat. Instead, it's it's Ja who's generating points in the paint. Games change so much. You're talking about points in the paint and playing a smaller lineup as though they naturally go together, which is just it's another it's another wild thing about this series. Well, like the the Memphis Grizzlies do a great job of rebounding, even though they're playing small with Carl Anthony Towns on the floor. They're generating offensive rebounds on 32 percent of their misses, which is a great mark. And a lot of times Carl's by far the biggest guy on the floor when they're doing that. So they're doing a, a really strong job of boxing out. Dylan Brooks in this series, when he's on the floor, the Memphis Grizzlies offensive rebound rate is outrageous. It gets back to this whole thing of just because Carlton Towns averages 11 rebounds a game does not necessarily mean that he is impacting the boards and rebounding 
like you think. It's, it reminds me of Brooke Lopez and Robin Lopez. Those brothers, all they care about is boxing out their man. They don't care about getting the actual rebound. And that helps you win games is when you can take the other big men and neutralize him on the boards. You might not get credited in the box score, but you absolutely are a great rebounder. I was just going to say that. And you know who typically is good at that is Steven Adams. So that's why it's a it's a little ironic, I guess, that he's not a part of this right now. Maybe he will be again in the in subsequent rounds. What do you think? I mean, I don't think this indicates that he's out of favor or anything like that. No, right? it's they just don't win fifty six games. It's just that, right. You can just yeah. get what you need out of these other guys for the moment. You don't see it as much in in, in basketball in, in the NBA. I think as as maybe in college, where just you get you really get crazy matchups. But this is the sort of wildest. Um, sort of departure and style of play that I've seen in, in for an extended series in a while. And Tom, what you're talking about is, I mean, that's how you, when you look at all the little things that s- traditional stats don't count, but then all of a sudden you look along to the end of the box score and you see some of the plus minus numbers. I mean, Tyus Jones had what, three rebounds in 20 minutes, but was plus 12. And this is, this is happening all up and down the Memphis bench. Well, don't well, do this to well, Jordan. I mean, You're giving Jordan an absolute look, layup. When you put a winning player on the court. You mean like Desmond at, Bain? At winning time, like Tyus Jones, you see what happens. The the other thing, let's give the Timberwolves a little credit, right? Except for the fact that they've probably outplayed the Grizzlies for most of the series and have to be frustrated again at blowing a game like last night. But they're doing this while getting sub suboptimal offensive performances from D'Angelo Russell, who killed the Grizzlies during the regular season and um, is shooting 32% from the field in this series. Um, Malik Beasley scoring under 10 points a game. They're not getting a ton off the bench. It's not like they've got a ton of guys stepping up and producing in unexpected ways here to be neck and neck with the Grizzlies. It's been the, 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 you know, the Anthony Edwards and, and Carl Anthony Towns show on offense but imagine if, if you know, if D'Angelo Russell were, were playing at a high level. I mean, outside of Towns, nobody's even hitting threes, right? I mean, Towns is the guy who's actually been their most successful long-range shooter. Let me – can I ask you guys, do you think this if, – if, if Minnesota doesn't pull this off, Minnesota goes down here, what is that – what's going to happen to Towns? Is he, is he farther away than ever from playing for a successful team? Is he going to stay? Or does this team actually have a shot? No, they're young. I mean yeah. – I mean, Anthony Edwards, uh, the trajectory is up for this team. Totally. They're, they're, if they, you know, it'll be interesting to see what the next, what they see as their finishing moves. Um, Probably need another versatile athletic wing who can defend. But um, no, I think they're quite to the opposite. Like, this is a building block for them. Yeah, he's getting memed, right? Like crazy right now because of his shushing John Morant there in game five. But, Look, if if I had told you before this series that the Timberwolves would go 2-2 against the Memphis Grizzlies, you know, the Timberwolves would go 2-2 against Memphis Grizzlies and Carl Anthony Towns would have a lot of trouble with fouls and not playing up to his abilities, I think that's a great thing. Like, that's pretty good. If they win, if they lose the series in six games, I don't think people are going to hold it against Carl Anthony Towns. They, they probably will on Twitter, but he's, he's, you know, he's a guy who... 
has been just crushed in the media ever since Jimmy Butler thing happened, right? The Jimmy Butler blow up in practice and then he leaves in a storm and Carl Anthony Towns is left to pick up the, the, the mess. And he just, he hasn't been able to, to reestablish himself as the best young big in the league until this year where he wins the three point shooting competition. He proclaims himself the best shooting big man of all time. And now what you're seeing is, um, a guy who's growing in the playoff stage. He still has a lot of room for growth. So we'll see. As my mom would say, I'd like to see that young man do well. <laughs> Is there a game six counter that you see now to what uh, to what Memphis did to sort of pull out game five? I mean, Timberwolves certainly have some ability to play small ball too, of course. But is there is there anything they can reintroduce? Sort of the way the Suns came out with the two bigs, right, against, against uh, the Pelicans. Is there a way they can shift things back in their direction and punish Memphis for playing this way? Two words, Greg Monroe. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Go there big with Cat and Greg in the in the front court and try to own the boards there. there we Greg go. Monroe, best underdog story <laughs> in the NBA. Greg Monroe's age. Wow. <laughs> Greg Monroe is 31 years old. Which is amazing, by the way. Like 31. That's it. He He's was done in the blink of an eye. It just, you know, what? I was going to call him a spring chicken, but that would have been bad because the Minnesota Timberwolves and Glenn Taylor. Yikes. Um, <laughs> spring chicken, Greg Monroe. Um, yeah. He's younger than Hassan Whiteside, which is amazing. That's, amazing comparison. That's, that's ridiculous. A producer Mays points out that Andre Drummond is 28 years old. 28 in what? Dog years? Are you serious? It's, it's just amazing the way these guys, like, we think they're done. And they're still, I mean, yeah. <laughs> LeBron's 10 years older. <laughs> yeah. I thought Andre Drummond was back from the, uh, from the, one of the Bush administrations. I mean, really, that's, I did not, I did not, I would not have guessed 28. I would have had the over. Speaking of over. The 76ers season might be over. They're they're up 3-2 in this series. By the time we're recording this, game six is yet to happen. But it kind of feels like if there was a team to blow a 3-0 lead, perfect storm, Doc Rivers and James Harden coming together in Philadelphia, <laughs> coming together against the Toronto Raptors that made a big upset in the 29th. No one saw you know the Raptors winning that, that title. Kind of feel like if there was a team to blow a 3-0 lead, it would have been the 2004 New York Yankees. Oh, sorry. All right. Wrong, wrong sport. The 2022 Philadelphia 76ers. Guys, this doesn't happen in the NBA. It doesn't. And yet, I kind of feel like the 76ers are laying down. James Harden can't get past anybody. He's hawking for fouls more than ever, and he's not getting those calls, and he's getting blocked. I, he's gotten blocks 11 times in this series. In the first five games of the series, he's been blocked 11 times by six different Toronto Raptors. Of widely varying height, too. They're coming at him from yes. all directions, and they're just, they're just stopping him. And it's a, it's a kind of... If if you like Daryl Morey or you like James Harden, it's a terrible thing to see. But it it looks like uh, just in time for this to crumble. It looks like wow. I mean, either he's got to pick up a couple of steps or he's lost a couple of steps. I'm not sure. I'm not sure which. But complaining that you're getting hacked when you're getting blocked is does not seem like a a, a wise playoff strategy. But regardless of what happens in Game Six. 
it is really amazing. You know, we've been talking about this, just how unusual it is to be in this situation in the NBA, right? Why there's never been a comeback from down 3-0? Why only three times has there even been a game seven and so forth? We did some research along these lines and the numbers are pretty eye-popping. Yeah, so I don't know how many people realize that of the 144 instances of a team going down 0-3, this is courtesy of landofbasketball.com. Great research source, Land of Basketball. Love Land of Basketball. Big fan. Jordan might be the king of the Land of Basketball. That's how much he likes it. Well, we, we know he's moved there anyway. We don't know if he's king yet. After we go to the Iowa State Fair and Augusta National, we're going to Land of Basketball. That's right. So of the 144 instances of a team going down 0-3, the team that went down in that series 0-3 has forced the game six just 13 times out of that 144 times. Think about that. They got weeded out in game four 90 times, 90 out of the 144. They don't even get to a game five. The team that is 0-3, so in this case, the Raptors, um, historically have won game four 37% of the time. They have a win percentage of 375. The team that's down 0-3 that wins game four, their win percentage in game five is just 241. So it drops. Now, Jordan, there's a very good reason for that, right? Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Typically, it, you'd have to assume typically the team that's that's up 3-0 is the better team and had home court advantage in games one and two, wins game three on the road, and then maybe comes out a little bit flat in game four on the road. That That, that underdog shows a little pride on their home floor makes it 3-1, but then they're going back on the road for game five, close out game, say goodnight. The gentleman sweep, as as they call it. Yes, so home court advantage alone should account for some difference between games four and five. So just from the math, there's fewer sweeps than you'd expect. These teams that go down 0-3 do a pretty good job of extending the series. But if you're going to go down 0-3, it takes a lot to overcome whatever it was that got you down 0-3 in the first place to go past winning game four, right? And and then the, and nobody's ever come all the way back, right? Right. So game six, there's only 13 teams that have done what the Raptors done. 13 teams out of 144 that went down 0-3 to force a game seven. And in that game six, or sorry, game six, in that game six, the underdog went three and 10. So they have a win percentage of just 231. So in game four, 375. In game five, 241. In game six, even lower still, 231. But there's only been three instances. Who's who's the Rochester fan on this show? I think it's Mays. It's definitely Mays. Definitely Mays. producer. Mays is a big Rochester fan going back to the 50s. I think he had season tickets, if if I remember correctly. Yeah. Who was on the fifty one Knicks? That's who we should find. What we should find out is that a because that was the other team in that series, Dick right? McGuire. Or- <laughs> no, but coached by Joe Lapchick. I did not know that. That's pretty cool. That's where you come on this podcast. You come for nineteen fifty one New York Knicks tidbits <laughs> here, and on that team, both Al and Dick McGuire. That's also very cool. Oh, and Ernie Vanderway. Oh, this is the and Harry Gallatin. This is the best obscure team we will ever talk about. That's a hell of no, a team. You like say the collective we. We're not doing that's that. That's a half a dozen New York yeah, legends. So How many Hall of Famers on that team? Oh, Because there guys were two just, teams in the in the in 1951. Very, well, we'll talk about parody in a minute, but... 
I can actually hear people closing their Spotify apps as you talk. <laughs> oh, as as though as though you don't still mourn the Knicks trading for Kiki Vandeway, okay. whose dad was Ernie Vandeway, not Art Vandeley, but Ernie Vandeway. Anyway, right. so yeah, those three O series. Speaking of uh, way, anyway, there have been three instances of a team forcing a game seven after going down 0-3. The 2003 Mavericks went up. 3-0 and the Blazers won three straight to force a game seven. The Mavericks prevailed in 2003. Then there was 1994, the famous Dikembe Mutombo Denver Nuggets team. They went against the Utah Jazz, lost the first three games, then won the next three games to force a game seven and lost that. So there've only been, there've never, there's never been a team to pull off the down 0-3 comeback successfully. And there's only been three out of the 144 instances that they even reached a game seven. So that's really the, the cards are stacked against the Raptors. You said there were three, right? I believe you mentioned the Denver, right? I don't think you gave any details about the 1951 New York Knicks <laughs> who <laughs> lost the NBA finals to the Rochester Royals. <laughs> and the next year, they, they also lost a seven game series to the Minneapolis Lakers who had George Mikan, who was like, Five feet taller than everyone else. You guys are so underrating the early 50s New York Knicks is all I can say. I, I should stand up and walk off the set like uh, Stephen A. Uh, it's just outrageous. Outrageous undervaluing of New York basketball. All right. I have muted Peter. We can't do this anymore. I've got him muted. Uh, Jordan, take us to the next segment here. Yeah. I mean, regardless of what you think the the Sixers end up doing against the Raptors and Again, by the time you're listening to this, they may have come back and won game six. I'm much more concerned about what this means about them going going forward. I I looked at them as a legit title contender. I think we all did after the Harden trade. It's frightening to see what they look like right now. They're all the way up to plus 1,700 to win the championship on DraftKings. That's behind the the Grizzlies, Bucks, Heat, Suns, Celtics, Warriors. But the other thing is that's some real some real parody right now. And I think that's going to be the theme, the theme of the second round. You've got the uncertainty of the Suns if they get by the Pelicans with Booker's injury. You've got the uncertainty of the Bucks with Chris Middleton's injury. You've got a Warriors team looking great, but that was against a Denver team that was a shell of what it could or should have been. You've got the Heat battling some injuries. I don't remember feeling this sort of uncertain about which of the final eight teams will emerge. Do you? I actually researched this and to steal a segment from Basketball Illuminati, Basketball Illuminati, Basketball Illuminati, say it three times, keep your third eye open. Um, I did some research on this <laughs> on sportsoddshistory.com. Jordan, you and I tag teamed on this one to look at mm-hmm. entering the second round, the conference semifinals of the playoffs. Have we ever seen a favorite have longer odds than the current title favorite, the Golden State Warriors, at plus 300? Golden State is plus 300. They might change a little bit going into the second round. We'll see. But I was curious, like, is this the most open race from looking at the title favorite um, in recent history? And dating back to 2010, thanks to sportsoddshistory.com, there hasn't been a longer favorite than the Golden State Warriors, which is one way to look at the parity at the top of the NBA. So the the longest odds for the favorite entering in the second round is actually two years ago, the Clippers plus 285. They, of course, did not win. 
um, in the bubble. But that was the longest odds entering the second round that we've seen for the title favorite. Last year, it was Brooklyn at plus 175. The year before that, of course, Clippers. Then Golden State for five straight years, they were the favorite and much, much shorter odds than what we're seeing with the Golden State Warriors this year. So it does feel like this is an open race. And Peter Keating's Memphis Grizzlies might bust down the door and actually do this. I'm going to unmute him now. Uh, he's been put out and put in timeout. But Jordan, go ahead. You had something to say. Wait, I, I had, I had, I had something. Oh I, God, he's I, back. I, I was going to add something about Dick the Nick. That's Dick McGuire. But I will not. <laughs> but I will not do that. I'll, I'll let. I'll let. But I. But Jordan, I do want you to answer me this question. You have all these all right. questions about all of these title contenders. Sure. I've been wondering in an era where we're supposedly seeing players, engineers, super teams, right? What happens when a super team goes bust? If you give up so many assets to get two or three great players on one team, or you give up everything the Sixers gave up to get Harden, and it doesn't work out, does that does that generally going to plunge these teams that we thought were going to be long-term contenders back into the middle of a pile? And is that contributing? Are the super teams gone bust one factor for this pile up of B plus teams that aren't exactly mediocre, but there's nobody running away with the race. I think these are better than B plus teams. I think that you're right. What we saw with the Lakers and the Nets may sort of add to this uncertainty of you didn't have a team that was hyped all year to be a a dominant team emerging and that probably plays into this. But if you look at the the odds to win a title right now, you got the Warriors at plus 300, the Celtics at plus 380, the Suns at plus 400. Heat plus 600, Bucks plus 750, Grizzlies at plus 1,000, right? That's the other way to look at this is just the bunching in there. And I think it's really like we were talking before the show, would you take the Warriors of the field? And I think we all agreed you would take the field in a heartbeat, which accounts for the plus 300 odds there. So, But I just just look at these potential second-round matchups, these matchups going forward where the injuries play such a big factor, and then – more than ever before, I think this is going to be a case of good matchup, bad matchup. Most times in the NBA, you have a team that's just clearly better. Here, this is going to be more matchup-based, right? Are you? Do you have a team that's capable of playing the Warriors' style and has an advantage at the five? Do you have a team that can punish the Celtics when they play their two bigs, right? It's going to be a little, little more intriguing stylistically, I think, than what we're used to seeing. So that makes it interesting to me to see which teams have good enough coaching and also depth that they can mix and match against different kinds of opponents. I'm really interested to see what Boston does next. Right. And the other thing injuries do is they reveal, uh, they create opportunities and they reveal other ways to play. So Miami, right? You get through these nagging, what I think are probably nagging injuries. Meanwhile, they've dusted off Victor Oladipo and I don't know if you, if Tom, if you think this is legit, what we've seen from him, but that's a different dynamic if he's a factor going forward, right? Yeah. My worry with him is just, can he stay healthy? We've seen this in moments from Victor Oladipo. And can we see that several games over a two week span? And we just haven't, we haven't had, had that opportunity to see that with Victor who has been, it's been incredible to watch him come back from those injuries. Um, but I, I still believe in the Lakers. What are the what does DraftKings say about the Lakers' uh, future title odds? You <laughs> <laughs> talk about you know versatility I, I believe- and well coached. I mean, Frank Vogel, <laughs> right? He's still. Wait a minute. Oh, I, I went I went down as far as Pelicans and I didn't see them. I don't know where they are now. Like 
What do you have to do to, you know, put put a bet down on the Lakers? What's going on? I haven't given up on Kawhi coming back this season yeah. either. <laughs> That's right. Well, that's the NBA playoff futures. I, I, it's kind of stunning how the the demise of the the faith of D- James Harden and Joel Embiid going forward at plus seventeen hundred at this point. If you still believe in the two superstar or three superstar theorem of Daryl Moore, you need two and a half superstars to win an NBA title. I think you can say Maxi looks more like a superstar than than jo- James Harden at this point. If Harden can figure out how to shoot better on twos than he does on threes at some point, maybe this turns around for the Sixers. But you know what? Speaking of turning it around, baseball players turning it around on a pitch. Oh, damn. I think it's time for Peter's hot corner. What do you have for us this week? Who's turning around on pitches at all anymore? All right. I think Anthony Rizzo is, baby. Uh, I was just going to give you a few quick names. Kettle Marte, who I thought was going to win a batting title, I really did, is hitting 149. Did you? No home runs. I did. Justin Turner hitting 206, no home runs. Jorge Soler hitting 190 with one home run. Randy Arozarena hitting 197 with no home runs. All right, I'll give you guys one guess. What do all these players have in common? They were yes, cherry you drafted them on your fantasy team? Yeah. They're all on my fantasy team. That's right. <laughs> Major League Baseball as a whole is hitting 231 right now. That's 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 a low. It's not an all-time low. It's it's been low batting averages and a lot of strikeouts for a while. But the league as a whole is slugging. Slugging. Average slugging percentage for the entire sport is 368. That's down 33 points from last year. Really? Now. Yeah, and our hitters are often cold in April. But again, this year, comparing to last spring and to recent springs, strikeouts are up. Averages are down. Hard hit balls are not going as far. What's happening is that the missing hits, the hits that are coming out and keeping these numbers depressed, are home runs. Home runs are down again. In fact, this is crazy. If home runs are hit at their current pace, there will be this in that they've been hit this season per plate appearance. There will be 1,500 fewer home runs this year, league-wide, than last year. 1,500. We're on pace to see 1,500 fewer home runs. It's crazy. Um, Is that good? Is that bad? Like, I don't know if we're getting into home runs. Hit this. Home runs hit this all-time peak in 2019, and the and while averages, batting averages, and strikeouts, you know, we're, we're becoming like a Joey Gallo sport, right? But the thing is. What's happened to cause them to go back down? And, um, to, you know, the answer to whether it's good or not depends a lot on whether you like the fact that the ball's probably deadened. Bullpens are getting a lot more diverse. There's different kinds of strikeout yeah, artists in all these bullpens. It's only good if it changes the way the game is played a little bit. And right now that hasn't happened. Yeah. Like that I, ha- yeah. I, I'd like to see home runs down and batting average up. I'd like to see, you know, I, more runners in motion in the ball and play. That's not happening. Well, there's a really, a really interesting report by Jeff Passan this past week that there are now humidors in use in all 30 ballparks, not just Coors Field. So if home runs are going down while the rest of the game stays dead, that's not a good thing, right? It's not like all of a sudden there's more doubles, triples, and stolen bases, or a lot more walks, or I don't know, a lot more anything that might make the game interesting. There's just fewer base runners, more strikeouts, and fewer home runs all at the same time. 
So how many? I, I I don't think is good news. How many home runs are we on pace for, Peter? We're on pace for about let's see, about four thousand four hundred home runs total. They were almost Does that take six- us back to the era of the nineteen fifty one Knicks. You know, three guys from St. John's, one from Colgate, one from <laughs> LIU, one from Holy Cross. And well, I, oh, and also Ray Lump, two P's in Lump from Did NYU. Basketball only exist in the tri-state was, area it, in 1950. It was a great tri-state area basketball team. It really was. No, Harry Gallatin, who you made fun of me for bringing up before, went to Truman State. While you guys are looking up where Truman State is, let me say this. <laughs> I would expect that in this era, if you don't swing and miss, you're going to have an advantage. If your strength is not to miss balls, like either to make contact or when you swing, just make sure you hit the ball hard. The Tony it's, not as, it's not as easy as it sounds. I mean, you have to have disciplined aggression. That's always a good thing, but I think it's especially good in this era. And I, want, I, I went searching for players who have very low rates of swinging strikes, but also hit the ball really hard. You can measure that a few ways, whether how many barrels they hit, which is a new stat cast um, stat for hitting the ball with the ideal exit velocity and launch angle, or um, your line drive percentage, or whether you just have had some bad luck. Here's a few guys to keep in mind. Okay. Um, <clears throat> we've mentioned Austin Meadows before, because last year he hit he had a very low rate of home runs for fly balls, so we thought he'd have a power surge. He has, he has an 880 OPS. Um, he, he basically doesn't swing and miss much, and he hit the, hits the ball hard. Um, you say you want a revolution? How about Seiya Suzuki? Yes, despite oh. the fact that this guy's playing in a completely different league, he's crushing the ball 6.4%. That's the, oh, that, that is the only, uh, the, the, oh, his swinging strike percentage is very low, high barrel rate. Mookie Betts, Mookie Betts has a, 222 batting average on balls in play, which is terrible. That's probably just bad luck. You trade for he's him right the, now. Yep. Okay. He's the king of disciplined aggression. He swings hard and he crushes the first pitch when he's, you know, when he swings. And um, here's a total off the wall one, but it, but I, as far as I can tell, he's due for a huge rebound. Carlos Santana, he looks old. He, he's, he plays like he's old. He may well be a guy with old player skills. Carlos Santana's BABIP, his batting average on balls in play, right now is 105. He almost literally can't have been unluckier than he has been this year. He has very few fly balls becoming home runs at the moment, yet he's hitting the ball harder than ever. His percentage of hard hit balls and his exit velocity are at his career highs. So he is not done yet. And I would say go trade for him, get him on the cheap. You should be able to in fantasy ball. And uh, to round out the list, Francisco Lindor, very few swinging strikes this year, hitting the ball hard this year. His rebounded stats, his better performance this year, does not look like a mirage. And I'll also just say, disappointingly for me, since I'm a bitter Mets fan, Aaron Judge, Giancarlo Stanton, Joey Gallo are all crushing the ball. They've just been different forms of unfortunate this year. Their barrel rates of of those three guys are in the top five in baseball so i don't think they're all Joey gallo yeah i don't think they're Joey all gallo the same Joey gallo that i watch on a nightly basis joey gallo has an expected slugging percentage of 511 and his actual slugging percentage right now is something like 230 
He's crushing the ball. The balls are just not dropping or going over the wall. They're not going anywhere that's helpful to him right now. So Joey Gallo is it, another contender for ultimate underdog with Austin Eckler, it sounds like. Yeah, and I would I would say— I also think Joey Gallo is an underrated fielder. Yankee fans have, have been harping on everything wrong that Joey Gallo does. Joey Gallo hit you 40 home runs a year, and that's ha- never a bad thing. Would you never. say that Carlos Santana— would you say his swing right now is is so smooth? Is it just like <laughs> is it just like the ocean under the moon? Oh, it's the same <laughs> as the emotion that I get from you. Huh? You got that kind of love, and that can be so smooth. Yeah, so far this about it. Yeah, I was gonna say this season is so bad you could just forget about it, but you but you shouldn't. He's not just standing around waiting to strike out. He's uh. He's capable. He's capable of doing much better. I'll say one other thing. Can you guys no. name? Say no other thing. Name a Latin American ball player. Any, any, you know, anybody from South or Central America who has the batting eye, the appreciation for drawing the walk that Carlos Santana has shown. There are very of, of players of that profile who walk a hundred times and strike out a hundred times a year and are very valuable because. Their on-base percentage supplements their power. Very, very few have been Latin American ball players. Oh, Carlos Beltran comes to mind. In fact, I remember him being so disciplined that he didn't swing at strike three in the playoffs. <laughs> oh, that's not funny. Uh, in fact, I love that one. In fact, can you can you even name? Can either of you even? And it's not Ray Lump or Dick or Al McGuire <laughs> or Harry the Horse Gallop. In the career leader in walks among Latin American ball players. Yeah, that's a there's a hot corner question. Yeah, it's not Carlos Santana yet, but it could be someday. It's Bobby Abreu, by the way. Yeah, so El Comaduce. There you go. There you go. Speaking of there you go, all the listeners at this point have just gone. Ernie Vandeweghe's nickname was Doc, by the way. Just so you know, to go Great. imagine having Doc Dick before the, Doc. Imagine Irving. having Doc, Doc, and Dick the Nick on your on your team. Don't sleep on those fifty-one Nicks. Is all I can say. Thank you for joining us on the Underdogs Podcast. We will be back next week. Uh, Austin Eckler will be hosting the rest of this show. So it was great to know you, everybody. Um, for Jordan Brenner, at Jordan Brenner on Twitter, at Peter Keating, NJ, NJ, not MJ as in Michael Jordan, but New Jersey, NJ. Peter Keating, Jordan Brenner, Anthony Mays, thank you for producing. Until next time. Until next time.